You know, many of you know that uh, when I was a kid, uh, my family moved around a lot. Uh, my, uh, my parents and I went to Kenya to be missionaries when I was just a year old, uh, and we came back after a year because both of my parents got sick. I, I don't remember that, but uh, we did that, and the first move that I do remember was when uh, my parents and I and a couple of my siblings at that point moved to England when I was in grade three. My dad, after we got back from Kenya, had gone back to school, got his PhD in chemistry, and was, uh, was now going to Oxford to do some postdoctorate work at Oxford University. When I was in grade five, we moved from Oxford, England, to Baltimore, Maryland in the U.S., except that we didn't have a place to live there yet, so my dad moved down there, and my mom and my five siblings at that point uh, lived with my grandparents in Scarborough for two months until we were ready to go down to live in our new place in Baltimore. So I went to three schools in three countries that year. Then when I was in grade seven, we moved from Baltimore to Ithaca, New York, and my dad worked at Cornell University, and I finished high school there, and then went to Bible college, and eventually my family came back to Ontario and continued to move, but I was out of the house by that point. You know, in my childhood, I never lived in the same city for more than seven years in a row. I never lived in the same house for more than five years. More often, it was more like two or three years, and uh, even, as I said, down to two months one time. And I, I hated moving. I hated it. It was traumatic every time I had to do it. You know, I wasn't a kid who could make friends easily. And I would just get to the point of feeling like I fit in, and then we would move again sometimes. And whenever I tell people the story of my childhood and moving so much, I usually get lots of reactions of being amazed at all the places that I've lived. But also, I get people who are amazed at all the places that my dad taught at, at, at these prestigious schools. And then I have to correct them and say, well, actually, no, my dad didn't actually teach ever. He never became a professor when I was a kid, though he, he teaches part-time at Redeemer now. He never taught. And they're always, oh, he didn't teach at these schools. What was he doing? Well, he, he was a scientist. He worked with the professors managing their postdoctorate students and running experiments in the labs and all those kind of things, getting stuff published. And one day I realized, oh, maybe that is kind of strange that my dad had a career in academia for so long and, and never taught. Like, he was never a professor. So when I was an adult, I asked him, Dad, why did you never become a professor? Did you want that? Like, did you not, like, you're a good teacher. Why did you not do it? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, well, when I was pursuing my academic career, I was never home. I wasn't home with you guys very much. And I looked around one day and realized that every professor that I knew who had reached tenure position was on their second marriage. Like, every single one of them. And I realized that wasn't a price I was willing to pay for my career. And so I took whatever job I could find in the fields, which is why we had to move so much. I hate moving, but I'm really glad we moved so much. I'm really glad, I'm thankful for my dad who had his priorities straight. He could see that some things in life are more important than the things that maybe you're told are important by, by the world, that aren't as worth it as, they think, as you might think they are. You know, though my parents sacrificed a lot for our, us kids and for our family. Both of them did, my mom and my dad. You can imagine my mom raising five kids. Um, The thing about them, though, is that though they did that, our family wasn't their main priority either. They had a greater purpose in their lives. They lived, and they still live for Jesus. That led them to put family over career, but it also led them to go to Kenya with a one-year-old. You know, I found out when I was a teenager, teenager that I almost died a bunch of times when we were in Kenya from malaria. There's a crazy story where I almost got eaten by ants one time. I'm not joking. Um, 
and I'm thankful that I didn't die, but my parents have always lived and still try to live with one basic principle that they know is important, that Jesus is the only one worth living for. Jesus is the only one worth living for. They knew that everything else, though it may be great, is secondary at best in your life. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 14, which my sister Beth just read for us. And as we look at this passage, that simple truth is is taught in this passage, that only Jesus is worth living for. My hope is that today as we look at this passage, you'll be challenged to rearrange some of your priorities that you'll be encouraged to hold firmly to Jesus at the top, as the top priority in your life. In our passage today, we're going to see this truth that only Jesus is worth living for. We're going to see it from a couple different angles. Paul and Barnabas are going to be talking to a couple different groups of people. And so they give this challenge that only Jesus is worth living for in different ways to different groups. They have to challenge them in different ways. So let me show you what I mean. We're starting at Acts chapter 14, verse 8, and we're going to see that the first challenge that they give is this. They're going to give the challenge, turn to the living God, your idols are worthless. You need to follow the one true God, because the things that you've been following aren't worth it. Turn to the living God, your idols are worthless. Now, if you remember where we were last week in Acts, Paul and Barnabas are on a missions trip that has taken them into what is today called Central Turkey. Then it was known as the region of Galatia in Asia Minor. They've been preaching about Jesus to both the Jewish people and also to the Gentiles. And many people have put their faith in Jesus and been saved, but a lot of people also haven't. And some of those who have not been saved, who who have rejected the message of Jesus, have then been persecuting them as a result. Paul and Barnabas have been physically thrown out of one town, They had to flee the next one because they found out a plot to try and stone them to death, just tossing rocks at them until they're dead. And so today we pick up our passage in verse 8. They're in the next town over, in the city of Lystra, and they're preaching the gospel there. And along the way, they see a man who's been crippled from birth. He's never walked in his entire life, and Paul discerns that he has faith to be healed, and so he heals him. And in the moment, in in these verses, you see a man whose legs have been atrophied from never being used be completely healed in an instant. That atrophied muscles beef up and grow, and he jumps up and has the balance to be able to walk around just right away. Now, the people of Lystra are mostly Greek in culture and religion. They worship, worship the Greek pantheon of gods, right? They worship Zeus and Hermes and Athena and all those guys. For them, these aren't just myths and stories. They actually believe in these gods. And so these pagans who have just seen a genuine miracle, right? This isn't just, well, I mean, he could kind of walk before. Like, he had never walked in his life, and you could tell by looking at him that his legs were like toothpicks, and he couldn't walk. They'd seen a genuine miracle, and they came to the only conclusion that their minds and their worldviews would allow them to come to. Look at verse 11. Acts chapter 14, verse 11 tells us what they how they responded. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So Paul and Barnabas are in this town. People in these towns would have spoken multiple languages. They've been talking to them probably in Greek, the trade language. But they start saying in their dialect, in the Lyconian language, this is, this is Zeus and Hermes. These are our gods who've come down to us. And Paul and Barnabas don't know Lyconian, so they don't know what they're saying. But when the chief priest of Zeus comes out and brings bulls for sacrifices, they clue into what's going on and they freak out a little bit. Verse, verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Tearing your clothes in Jewish culture, you may know from reading the Bible, was uh, the way to show grief over blasphemy. If you read the stories of Jesus, you know that when Jesus was on trial, the Jewish high priest tore his robes when Jesus said that one day he would sit at the right hand of the throne of, the, of God. The, the, the priest recognized that what Jesus was saying is, I am equal with God the Father. And he said, this man has just claimed to be equal with God, and he tore his robes and called him a blasphemer. And here in this passage, the exact opposite's happening. A pagan priest has said that Paul and Barnabas are gods. And Paul and Barnabas are tearing the robe saying, no, we are not. We are just, just humans like you. Don't, please don't worship us. Please don't sacrifice to us. Don't confuse that the power that you just saw comes from us. It's not our power. That power comes from the one true God. So look at what they say in the second half of verse 15. They've just said, we're just humans like you. They continue on in the second half. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. They say, the whole, the whole reason that we came to you, the whole reason that we've been speaking to you, the whole reason that we showed you this power and healing is so you would stop doing this kind of thing. Stop putting your faith in, in worthless idols, in false gods that have no power. There's only one true God. He's the living God. It's not Zeus. It's not Hermes. It's not Ares. It's not Aphrodite. Those gods have no power. They're not worth worshiping or living for. They're false and worthless. So again, the first challenge that they bring in this passage is turn to the, to the living God because your idols are worthless. What's an idol? In the simplest terms, an idol is a statue of a god, right? If you were to go into that temple of Zeus, you'd find a, a statue, a stone statue of Zeus that represented him. They would have worshipped that statue as a stand-in for Zeus. You know, in the Bible, God hates idols, right? He's not kind of, ah, they're, they're not great. Like, he hates them. He is for sure against them. He mocks them. And you know, in the Ten Commandments, the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God says, I don't want you worshiping idols to his people. And he says, it's not just because I don't want you worshiping other gods, right? Because the first commandment covered that. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. That, that kind of covers it. The second commandment takes that a step further and says, I don't want you to use an idol when you worship me, God says. Even if you're, you're worshiping me, I don't want you to use a statue to do it. And here's why. Because 
if you make an idol of me, you have to represent me as something physical. You'll have to carve a statue of like a human kind of thing, or, 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 or the sun, or a bull, like the people did at the foot of Mount Sinai. You'll have to make a statue of something that I've created in order to worship me. But I'm not like any of the things that I've created, God says. Now, here's a really important way of categorizing everything that exists that we need to think about, right? If you were to think about everything that exists in all of the history of the universe, you could put them into two really big categories. The first is creator. The second is creation, right? Creator, creation. The first category, the creator, is the category that God fits into, period. Nothing else, right? God is the creator, and he's different from everything else that exists because he created those things. God is different because God was never created. God has always existed. God has life in himself, the Bible says. When God reveals himself to Moses, he calls himself, I am that I am. I'm the one who just is, without anyone else making that happen. God has no beginning and he has no end. He is perfect and all-powerful and unchanging. The first category, creator, is God, period. The second category, creation, is the category that everything else fits into without exception, right? There's no third category. If you're not God, you fit into this category. Humans, animals, plants, stones, oxygen, the stars, time, physical space, angels, demons, everything else. All of those things were made by the living God. They all had a beginning. They had a time before they were created. And many of them will have an end. Some of creation has life. Not all of it does, but some of it does. But we don't have that life in ourselves like God does. It was granted to us by God. So if, if there's two categories of everything that exists, there's creator, God, and creation, everything else, here's what an idol is. An idol is when we get our categories mixed up. When we worship creation as if it were the creator. We worship creation as if it were God. So that could mean worshiping a dead piece of stone carved to look like a human, but it also means so much more than that. Have you ever wondered why the pagan gods had so many gods? Because each one of those so-called gods represented something, right? Something specific. You know, we know that Zeus was the king of the Greek and Roman gods, but he was also the god of the storm and of the rain. You often see him with a lightning bolt in his hand, right? So if you were a, a pagan who worshipped Zeus and you wanted rain on your crops, you would sacrifice and pray to him so that he would send rain. Hermes was the messenger of the gods, right? He's the one with the little wings on his feet that, that runs really fast. Uh, and that's why they thought Paul was Hermes, because he's the main speaker, the messenger, but he's also the God of luck and of business and of commerce. So if you want your career to advance, you want your business to succeed, you sacrifice and pray to Hermes. If you wanted wisdom and knowledge, you would sacrifice and pray to Athena, right? The goddess of wisdom. If you wanted victory in sports, you would pray and sacrifice to the god Nike, which is where that comes from. If you wanted to victory in war, you would pray and sacrifice to the god Ares. If you wanted to get married or have children or just have really good sex, you would pray to the god Aphrodite. Right? This is how they live their lives so on and so forth, to all the gods. So the Greek gods 
are idols because literally they were statues they would worship at, but also because they represented parts of creation, right? They were literally worshiping parts of creation embodied in these gods. If you were worshiping Hermes, you were literally worshiping your your career and your business and, and luck. If you were worshiping Nike, you were literally worshiping victory. If you were worshiping Aphrodite, you were literally worshiping marriage, sex, and childbearing. You're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Now, in our sophisticated, postmodern, Western world, you may not know anybody who bows down to a statue literally. But we all worship idols. You know, my dad could have chosen his academic career as his god and could have sacrificed his children and family on the altar to his god. He could have worshipped Hermes and Athena, knowledge and career, without even thinking about them or mentioning those names. We all do that in big and small ways all the time. We choose to live our lives for something in this life, and as a, which is part of God's creation, instead of living our lives for the Creator. The things that are good gifts from God and that we recognize are from Him, but they become worthless idols when we try to put them in God's place. Listen again to what Paul and Barnabas said to the people of Lystra in in verse 15. They say, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So Paul and Barnabas say, listen, in the past, God was just working with Israel. He didn't reach out to all you other nations out there. He didn't tell you about himself. You, You had no way to know about him unless you came to Israel. You really didn't have any hope. But that was in the past, and now God has reached out to you. He wants you to know him as the creator of all these good things. Something's changed. There's a, there's a now. Something has changed. Something big had happened that had marked the end of one epoch in human history and started the next epoch in human history. It's such a big thing that later in, in history, people started measuring history based on that coming. Right? Jesus. Talk about B.C., A.D. is, you know, they got the math wrong, but based around when Jesus was born. Paul's saying God's changed his plan now. He's not just dealing with Israel. He's he's reaching it out. He's expanding it to everybody. He wants you to know him. And a few weeks ago, we saw how Paul preached a sermon to the Jewish people about Jesus. He said, you've already believed in the one true living God, but in order to really know him, you need to accept his chosen one that he sent. You need to accept Jesus. You know, these pagan people have a, a disadvantage to the Jewish people because they didn't know the one true living God. The Jewish people did. But even though the Jewish people had that advantage, they still rejected Jesus when he came. Part of the reason that they did, as I mentioned before, was because they believed that he was a blasphemer. He claimed equality with God. He did the opposite of what Paul and Barnabas do in this story. Jesus, though who was a human, he didn't say, no, I'm just like you, don't worship me. He invited worship. He claimed equality with God. How do we understand that? Through history, lots of people have tried to understand this 
idea of Jesus, a human, claiming equality with God, and a lot of people have done a really bad job of understanding it. One of the most common misunderstandings of Jesus is when people say, and I've heard this from people from our church even, well, there's God, and then there's Jesus, and Jesus is God's son. And Jesus is divine and all that, he is, but he's obviously not as great as God, right? He's kind of below him a little bit. But here's why that doesn't work. Remember the, the two categories? There's creator and there's creation. And the only thing, the only person in creator is God. There isn't an in-between category. There isn't like a creator minus or anything like that. Jesus is in the category of creator. Look at what the Bible says in John chapter 1 about him. In the beginning was the word, and if you read down, you'll find out that word is talking about Jesus, because it says that he came and, and dwelt among us as flesh. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Those three verses say that Jesus is the creator. He has life in himself. He existed with God in the beginning before time started. He's eternal. And while he existed with God, he also was God. He's with God and he was God. How does that work? The Bible tells us over and over again, there is one God. There's not multiple gods like the Greeks believed in, the Romans believed in, and lots of other pagan religions do. There's one God. But what the New Testament teaches is that one God exists as three persons who are distinct from one another, but still completely united as one God. That's confusing. I don't understand all of how that works and the details of it. But it's really important that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God. When we talk about God, we don't just mean the Father. You can, you can say Jesus is God and be right. God died on the cross and rose again. You can't say the Father died on the cross, because that's not right. The Son died on the cross. But you can say God died on the cross. It's confusing, but it's important. Jesus, who was with the Father and the Spirit before time began for all eternity, who took part in creation, that Jesus, who is God, at the right time in God's plan to save the world, he came and became a human being. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The creator became creation in order to save us from sin. That should boggle your mind, right? Don't let that become old news to you. Think about the love that the living God has for us. It's, it's incredible. The, the God who sent good gifts to our ancestors, who were, who were pagans, who knew nothing about him for generations. He knew that, that our ancestors would, ancestors would turn those good gifts into worthless idols. And yet he still sent those good gifts because he loved them and because he, he knew that in the fullness of time when Jesus came, some would see his goodness, recognize the God who had been giving them those gifts, and turn to him and, and be saved. And so the eternal God the Son became a fragile, mortal human being. He came and lived among us to die for our sins and rise again. And even after that, for thousands of years, God has continued to give good gifts to those who don't know him. And he continues to call us to him. He says, turn from the worthless things in your life. 
Live for the one true living God. If you have never done that, if you've never put your trust in Christ and said, I, I need to turn from these things so they are not worth it, you can do that right now today. Your creator loves you. Your creator came to rescue you. The question is, will you turn to him? Whatever you have to give up isn't worth keeping. Only he is. So that's the first challenge. The first challenge is turn, from your, or turn to the living God because your idols are worthless. The second challenge is for people who've already put their trust in Jesus, who've already believed in him, and, and, and this is it. Stand firm in the living God because Jesus is worth it. Don't, don't give up on what you've believed in, on whom you've believed in. Even though it gets hard, don't give up because Jesus is worth it. Stand firm in the living God because Jesus is worth it. Look at verse 18, right? So Paul and Barnabas have been trying to say, don't sacrifice to us, please. And in verse 18 it says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. They, they barely get out of that crisis. And in the next ver verse, they're in a new crisis. Verse 19 says, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, they got up and went back into the city, and the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus in the previous towns aren't just happy to run Paul and Barnabas out of town, they follow them. They turn the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. I think about a roller coaster they've been on. Don't worship us. Please don't stone us either. Like, they're, they're, they're not having a good day, Right? And they stone Paul and they drag his body out of the city, but he's not actually dead. He's just hurt. He's unconscious. The disciples gather around him, the Christians in that town, to say, oh no, what happened? And Paul's like, he gets up, he revives. They, they sneak him back into the city to tend his wounds and spend the night. And the next morning, he and Barnabas get, go on to the next town. Now, I, it's like a 60-mile hike. I don't know. He must have had at least some broken bones, I would assume. Concussion? I don't know. But I, I guess God was helping him do that. Maybe they gave him a piggyback ride. I'm not sure. But they, they go to the next town. And it seems to go better in this next town in Derby. Verse 21 says they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. That, that's nice. They've had, a, they've had a, rough, a rough journey. Not just in this past city, but all the cities have ended up pretty terribly for them. And this one doesn't seem to go badly. Now, understand this point. I don't have a map up, but in the past chap two chapters, since the beginning of chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas were sent on a missions trip, they've basically completed almost a complete circle. And they're, they're almost back to where they started in Syrian Antioch. If they walked from where they were in Derby, it would take them a couple weeks on foot to get back to where they started. After being around for a year, they could have stopped in Paul's hometown of Tarsus on the way, had a break. They're almost home, right? But that's not what they do, right? We, we know at the end of this chapter, they end up back in Syrian Antioch, giving a missionary update on their journey and enjoying fellowship with their brothers, brothers and sisters there. That's how the chapter ends. But they don't get there the quick way. Look at verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city, that's in Derby where they are, and won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So rather than finishing the loop, they circle back and go backwards through the entire trip that they just took spending probably another year going into towns where now they're not strangers, now they're known and they're wanted and they're hated and they're in danger. 
Why do they do this? Why would they do that? Because they weren't just rejected in every town. The gospel wasn't rejected by everybody. Some people turned to Christ. And now these people who have turned to Christ in this town are living in hostile environments that they can't just go on to the next town. They live there. So they go back to strengthen their brothers and sisters who put their faith in Christ and say, you need to hold fast. You need to stand firm. They couldn't just abandon these new Christians. Verse 22 says they were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. So that's our message, right? He says remain true to the faith. Everything you've learned about Jesus, about what it means to follow him, about who he is as as the chosen one of God, as the Messiah, as actually God himself, don't give up on that. You've been rejected by the people around you for believing this, but he is worth it. Stand firm in him. Don't waver. Jesus is worth it. And nothing that you've had to give up is worth going back for. You know, it's not just secular people. It's not just pagans or unbelieving Jewish people who need to be told that only Jesus is worth it. Christians need it every day. Because we forget so easily. Right? God's good gifts that should turn our hearts back to worshiping him they easily become idols for us. We get our priorities mixed up so often. And then when we do, when we do get our priorities mixed up, we can't really live for Jesus the way that we're supposed to. You start to hear yourself th- say things like, I know I really don't have time to invest in my kids and disciple them, but m- my career is really taken off right now. Or I know that this romantic relationship is dishonoring to God, but I feel so fulfilled when I'm with him. Or I know that I should give a portion of my money to the Lord for his service, but I've come to expect a certain lifestyle and I just can't afford it right now. Or I know that I should be sharing my faith, but I'm just not prepared for how people will treat me if I do. If any of that rang true for us, and I think all of it will at some level for some of us, we need to take this challenge seriously to stand with Christ and stand up for our faith, stand firm in him. To remember that Jesus is worth it. And that, yes, you're going to have to give things up. And yes, it's going to be hard. But it will be worth it. He is worth it. Did you catch what Paul and Barnabas actually said when they encouraged the disciples to remain true in the faith? Right, The second half of verse 22, they say, we must, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're not willing to suffer for Jesus, you probably have another God that you're living for. And if you have another God, you should be concerned about whether you are actually going to enter Jesus' kingdom. You know, there are are so-called Christian pastors out there that are going to tell you that loving Jesus means health and wealth and happiness all the time. That you're not going to suffer. You're going to live your best life now. Title of the book. But the whole Christian message about how we live after we put our faith in Jesus is that we follow Jesus. We follow in his footsteps. The footsteps of Jesus are the God of the universe who humbled himself and suffered for us. Glory comes at the end of the story, but before that comes the suffering. Do you remember how Jesus described the Christian life? We we preached through Luke for a couple years uh, in the past. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, Take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Following Jesus means standing out in a crowd. It means giving up your idols and being willing to suffer. But the end, the end is salvation. When Jesus returns and reigns forever the king, as king of the universe, we will enjoy his glory forever, and he is worth it. But here's the question. Living with that hope in mind, it's so hard. How do we actually do that when we're facing real suffering in life? Well, the answer that we get in this passage is we do it by living together as a church. We do it together. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, it says in verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting, he committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So besides encouraging the Christians and speaking to them, they they go and they say, okay, who's going to lead you as a church? Who's qualified to teach you what God's word says? Who's godly and living up to you? They appointed these men as elders and said, you are the ones who are going to lead the churches. Right? In the New Testament, the word pastor or shepherd, the one that we normally use, is used interchangeably with elder and overseer, are the two other words. The word bishop comes from overseer. They're all, they all mean the same thing. Churches are community, communities of God's people who are living together for Jesus in the midst of the world that doesn't understand him and doesn't like him and is going to make it hard for us. God gives pastors to teach and train and equip his people not just so that we can know the Bible and you know, be smart about it, but so that we can live in this world for Jesus when it's hard. So that we can stand shoulder to shoulder and support and encourage one another. We can grow in that, guys. We need to commit ourselves to the Lord because we trust him. We know that he's worth it. We need to pray and fast together. And be there for one another. And we, we don't always do a great job of that. We have our friends, but I mean, as our church grows especially, there's a lot of new people here in the past six months. We need to be investing in one another. Not just on Sunday mornings, but outside of this time. Really having relationships. You know, though my family moved a lot, my parents always prioritized finding a church. We didn't just attend, we were neck deep in church, (laughs) everywhere we went. We were there every Sunday unless we were sick or just out of town on vacation or something. Nothing else was a priority over church on Sunday mornings and throughout the week too. My parents were involved in serving, we were involved in building relationships. My parents knew that going to a new place where we didn't fit in, we needed God's people. And the Bible calls us as Christians exiles in this world, that we're not going to fit in here. This isn't really our home. And we need God's people. We can't just be around each other when it's convenient. We need to do the hard work of getting to know each other and being involved. I really hope that's what church is for you, right? It's not just a religious duty you fulfill or a service that you attend when you don't have something better going on. It's not just a TED Talk you walk on, watch online. But that you're working to make it your family. It's a community of brothers and sisters who trust in Christ and gather weekly to worship him and be encouraged and taught from his word and hold each other accountable and help each other and stand firm in Jesus together. I hope if you've been hurt by Christians who haven't done that for you that you'll keep trying. 
This is what God has given us to be together. He's worth it. We need each other. Don't be content with surface-level relationships in the church. Get invested, get involved, build relationships and grow together in Christ because he is worth it. Would you pray for me? Or pray with me? <laughs> you can pray for me too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, Jesus Christ, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, our God who is three in one, our creator, the one who has life in himself, who is eternal and does not change, we as your creations need your help to remember who you are and not get distracted by the good gifts that you give us. Help us to turn the good gifts you give us, career and relationships and family and health, wealth, any kind of happiness. Help us to turn those back to you and worship and not live for them. When we do suffer and we do lose those things, help us to be content because we still have you. Give us, Lord, among, our, among each other a family that we can grow together in imperfect as it is and as we hurt each other and, and don't always do this well, Lord, help us to grow in this. Father, we want to remember that Jesus is the only one worth living for. Help us to, to do this well together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.